We will be getting to our guest, Chris Rufo, in just a second. Uh, I don't know if you all were seeing and watching what I was just watching. It's astonishing when you see these interviews strung together from their highlights. And wow. So Christopher F. Rufo is a filmmaker, a writer. Uh, he has directed documentaries for uh, PBS. He is also a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of public policy magazine City Journal. He has been reporting on uh, multiple, I've talked to him over the years on multiple uh, areas, multiple areas. Um, he was on KBC back in 2019 to talk about homelessness in Seattle and Los Angeles. It is um, it is uh, good to touch base with him again. And what he's been worrying about now is that we either in need of or been in the middle of a cultural revolution. So I'll be watching you guys on Restream, Twitter Spaces, and also, uh, of course, on the Rumble Rants. We'll see you just after this break. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin. Ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. I suspect you've seen Susan and I gushing over Paleo Valley products. We love the taste and how well they fit into a paleo-based nutrition regimen. They're delicious and we use them for travel all the time. But there is more. We are huge fans as well of Paleo Valley's grass-fed bone broth protein. It comes in three flavors, unflavored, vanilla and chocolate. It's a powder you can add to really anything. We add it to coffee literally every day. Smoothies, baked dishes, just hot water dissolves really easily. The bone broth protein is made with 100% grass-fed and finished bones that are free from pesticides or antibiotics and are slow simmered to extract as much collagen as possible. As we age, collagen breaks down. That's what wrinkles are. And research shows that there are significant benefits to adding a collagen source in your diet. I don't think it's too much to say it's changed our lives. And Susan is now reporting that after drinking the bone broth for a few weeks, her hair is stronger and longer and nails are stronger too. Try it for yourself. You can order at drdrew.com slash paleovalley and use Dr. Drew at checkout to save an additional 15%. A lot of you have been asking for more information about how to counter the adverse effects of the spike protein from COVID infections and the COVID vaccine. The spike protein is not your friend. Let's just say that. So I'm glad we have the wellness company Spike Support Formula as a sponsor especially since renowned internist and cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough, who's also chief scientific officer of the wellness company, is one of its champions. There's some very intriguing research around natokinase, which might be a way to take on the spike protein. Listen to this. So start, if you would, with talking about natokinase, how you got to that and where you see its application. So with the viral infection or the vaccines, the spike protein stays within the body and it's found in the heart, the brain, the vital organs, and it's causing problems. The Japanese have been using this for heart and vascular disease now for 20 years. It's safe. It is a form of a mild blood thinner that it dissolves the spike protein nearly completely. Spike support formula is the only product on the market containing natokinase, dandelion root, and a host of other antioxidants, all showing promise in helping you protect yourself and your family. To order this unique, specially formulated supplement, go to drdrew.com TWC. 
That is drdrew.com slash TWC. Use code Drew at checkout for 10% off today. Thank you all for joining us today. Chris Rufo again is my guest. You can follow his Substack at rufo.substack.com and also uh, on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it now, Real Chris Rufo, R-U-F-O. Let's get Chris on in here. Chris, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you. So uh, we're no longer talking about homelessness, you and I, although all uh, all those conversations from long ago... I guess we're well ahead of their time. I mean, we, we, we saw the problem then, and of course they've done nothing about it. And so many, many, many thousands have died because of it. I, I've been in the position that it's murder, uh, and I continue to be of that opinion because it's something so easy to solve. It's funny, Chris, I was thinking to you the other day, I gave a talk to a bunch of um, county supervisors, a national organization, and I just said, why are you, why are you trying to treat medical problems with social workers? What, what are you thinking? And they were like, these are medical? What are you talking about? And I was like, and I gave a lecture. I was like, here's your data. This is what you're dealing with. This requires physicians to treat, uh, to lead teams, to manage these things. They were shocked. And a lot of them defended their position as, well, we were just handed this by the, the previous uh, administrations. And this is how they did it. I, I, we didn't understand. Yeah, it's beyond. It's, it's become, it was, which is a really interesting sort of observation, which this stuff has become endemic it it i it made me think also and this is what i want to tee up for you it made me think about what's going on on college campuses and now we have two generations of uh indoctrination and endemic faculty it's no longer the exception to have faculty with extraordinary ideas it's this status quo that has been there for maybe two certainly one generation uh let's hear your thoughts yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and, and what I think that the fundamental problem is, and we see this at universities, we see this on homelessness, we see this on K through 12 education, is that uh, uh, the left has become so used to dominating its own environment and, and, and essentially believing its own lies. And a lot of these lies come from good intentions. They want to avoid uncomfortable truths. They want to avoid offense. They want to avoid questioning their own uh, ideas uh, out of some polite instinct, but uh, they actually have consequences, and that's what we're seeing everywhere. And I think it's just astonishing. And 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 what I document in the book, but is seen very clearly in the response to homelessness, is that we've become so degraded in our even our sensory capacities that you can walk by a street full of tents with people who are in kind of obvious mental, physical distress, uh, you know, schizophrenics. Uh, talking to themselves, people doing drugs openly. And then you say, well, what's the problem here? And they can't even really trust their own eyes, their own observation. They say, well, the problem is, you know, systemic racism or the problem is historic oppression. I mean, things that have have have, have absolutely no immediate bearing on the situation, uh, which they really refuse to even see. Well, I I think it's not that that they've been using it for. I think they've been using it, their rhetoric constantly uh, suggests that this is true. They use the homelessness as as a reminder of income inequality, right? Which it has nothing to do, there is income inequality, but that's the wrong poster for it. These are people with this. This is about a failure of the mental health system and a failure to treat drug addiction and a failure to ask people with serious brain diseases to do anything and to allow them to die. 
it's a, it's a kind of murder. I don't understand why we can't see it that way. And, and anyway, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, look, there, there's certainly some truth to that, but it's it's actually th- th- a little bit more complicated, though. There's a wrinkle because um, in theory, the left offers uh, compassion, offers uh, health care, offers treatment. All of those are are kind of therapeutic words that have a kind of left wing uh, cachet. And yet they're unwilling to deploy it in the situation of homelessness because it requires coercion. Um, because they want every choice to be voluntary uh, for, for, for groups that are considered lower down on the ladder. Um, and, and coercion can only be applied to groups that are higher up on the ladder. And so they're caught between their own priorities. On the one hand, in opposition to coercion of, of the oppressed, of the dispossessed, of the marginal. And on the other hand, they have all of these tools that they would supposedly want to deploy, that they're unwilling to do so uh, given those constraints. But um, you know, the people who really suffer from this are, 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 of course, the people in the streets, but also the, you know, the middle class people who are trying to get on the bus, trying to go to work, trying to get inside uh, the buildings where they need to go downtown that are subjected to this nightmare um, that is created, of course, you know, in some sense by the people on the streets, but I think in, in, in a greater sense uh, by the politics. Um, and so I, I wondered back then when we first talked a number of years ago. When will voters start to connect the dots on this? And when will they start forcing right. the politicians to acknowledge the reality? I, I, I don't know. Tell me your sense in, in Los Angeles. Has that happened or is that really just still uh, uh, something that could possibly occur in the future? It's hard to understand. I was just talking to somebody about this this morning. I mean, why can't, why do you keep voting the same policy and the same types and the same people back in again and again? It's, it's, you know, it's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. It's, it's really hard to understand. I do, um, I understand a little bit about why these people that are in these elected positions seem to refuse to change their recalcitrance or, or to, to, to change their position, they are they are completely at the whim of activists, completely. I, I think it's they must need the activists to do some things and then they have to cave to activists in other areas. Because if you say the slightest thing about moving one of the 20,000 campers that line the streets of Los Angeles with terribly drug-addicted individuals living in, or talk about asking addicts to do anything, to do anything, to say, come with me, I can help you. You're, you're, you can't do that. That is coercion. Uh, and in, at the same time, mind you, these elected officials put laws in place that would put me in prison for elder abuse if I didn't manually take somebody with dementia with the same exact symptom complex and bring that person to treatment. The horror in all this is that dementias are inexorable. They're going to get worse no matter what. So bringing that person to treatment is for sure. I want to get them to treatment so they're safe, but it's not going to change the course of illness. While addiction, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, these things you, you you intervene early and you change the trajectory dramatically. While if you leave a schizophrenic in the street, they'll be done forever, forever, and drug addicts will die. Uh, so the so one of the one of the little elements in all this I've noticed that they always leave out, and that is a wrinkle in their their thinking about this, is the progressivity of these illnesses. 
Opiate addiction, stimulant addiction is a progressive illness that ends in death, period. Schizophrenia is a progressive illness that destroys the brain if you don't help early. They refuse to acknowledge this. Their position is, well, let's have nurses give the heroin instead. If I give the heroin, it still progresses. It doesn't matter. It is a feature of the substance on the brain and the genetics of these individuals. So that's the part I can't get them to acknowledge. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, it, it's, there's another social cost element to it as well. So you have, of course, it's progressively gets worse for the people who are suffering from schizophrenia or heroin or meth addiction. Um, but unlike the dementia patient, uh, these folks also become more dangerous to others uh, progressively as their illnesses get worse and worse. And so, um, you know, at the end of the day, if a dementia patient or a someone suffering from dementia uh, isn't, you know, housed and, 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 and treated and cared for, um, you know, this is a tragedy for that person, certainly, and that person's family in, 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 in an emotional way. Um, but they're not a threat to others. They're not going to do violent outbursts. They're not going to stab people on the street. They're not going to attack people, uh, you know, on the on the subway, and so we're we're, we're creating a, a a a situation that you know every day becomes more and more clear. And I think you're exactly right. It's a hostage style politics. Activists control the levers of power. Activists control the narratives. Activists control, um, you know, even the kind of reputation and safety of political figures who then engage in a fiction and and you know, I think some of them don't understand. I think really genuinely they have no idea, but I think others do yeah. understand. And I think that they're really, they're willing to basically say in a cynical way, all right, well, you know, we're going to do a little bit. We're not going to really cross the activists, uh, even though we really know what's happening. I, I don't understand who these activists are, what they intend and why politicians even give them the time of day. I don't get it. Can you explain that to me? Yeah. So, um, you know, certainly in, in Seattle and San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, these are uh, big cities with very robust uh, left wing networks. So you have a couple key elements that create this this ecosystem. You have, uh, you know, very wealthy people who dump, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into left wing causes. Then you have the staffers of these left wing causes that are you know, ideologues, that are utopianists, that are you know, I I idealists, that are very, very uh, committed to the ideology. And then you have the, the same money and the same institutions, whether it's foundations or, 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 um, or, or private foundations, meaning uh, uh, kind of charitable donations, they go to the local media. So like the homelessness coverage at the Seattle Times is not funded by readers. It's funded by left-wing billionaires and left-wing, uh, you know, centimillionaires. And then they also fund academic institutions. They fund other outlets. And then you have activists within the local government that administer the programs that are very much in line. And so what you have is an entire ecosystem that controls information, that controls policy, that controls academic research, that controls street level activism. So those 25 people that show up at your house uh, if you vote the wrong way. And this is very overwhelming in a small environment. And you don't have anything on the other side. There are no you know, moderate, centrist or conservative uh, billionaires, media institutions, street level activists. I mean, none of that exists in these places. So they're getting immense pressure narratively, financially, politically, you know, physically um, uh, it, only in one direction. And so it would take uh, something of a, of, of a kind of heroic figure uh, in order to resist that. I, 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 it, the, I, 
I understand the infrastructure and the think tanks and stuff like that, and, and I'm actually quite fine with that. Uh, I assume Wright has something like that going on as well. But it, I, I look at the activists who show up, and they are violent and aggressive and seem like anarchists to me. They don't seem to be necessarily towing a specific policy line. Am, am I misreading what that is? Well, there's there's two kind of forms of activists. So you have on homelessness, you have, you know, the the actual the homelessness service providers that make money on this. Uh, they're kind of like union muscle in a sense. Uh, you have the, the mm -hmm. academics and journalists and intellectuals. They provide the intellectual scaffolding. And then you have these street level activists, the people that you're talking about that are uh, they're opportunists. They're left wing anarchists. They're left wing, you know, BLM riders. They're they're left wing. Uh, you know, provocateurs, and they, they, they jump onto any cause that allows them to vent their impulses out in public. So it's homelessness one day, it's BLM the next day, it's, you know, uh, trans activism the other day. Um, and so it's a kind of motley crew that you see. And, and, but it's effective. I mean, if you can get a hundred people to yell and scream at a public meeting or in front of someone's house or, or at uh, outside your office, it has an impact. It has a psychological impact and therefore has a political impact. Um, and of course, I'm not suggesting that the counter protesters should, should mobilize against them in, in the same way. Um, but, but it, it does affect the calculus of, of politicians who, you know, if they have one great skill, it's being perceptive and having their antennas up for public opinion. I mean, that's, that's, that's their job. Uh, and if they only hear it one way, all day, every day, the money goes one way, all day, every day. And then you have a circle of influence where the people who get funding for these absurd, you know, service programs and, 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 and harm reduction programs, uh, then funnel that money back into activism, funnel that money back into politics. Um, you have to have something significant to break it. And I haven't seen anything that would that anything to that scale where that might happen. Well, I mean, isn't the significant thing, what about the rest of us? <laughs> what about all the people in this country, in this city, everyone in the middle, everyone, as you said, moderate? Uh, that's everybody. That's everyone else. And why do the why are the politicians able to listen to these extremely, I don't understand why they listen to them, these very fringe, or and you say they're part of a larger infrastructure. I, I get that, but there's there's a gigantic population that is going. Hey, what are you what are you doing? Why you why do you listen to these people? They're not representing me, and you're letting them as the elected official. You're the person that represents me, not the people yelling at you. And the I remember when they when they cleaned up Las Vegas a little bit, they started saying they're they're not going to allow certain uh, behaviors and they're going to put people in treatment and stuff. And the mayor just went. You don't have a vote here. You get out. Get, get out. You don't know what you're talking about. You never treated somebody with schizophrenia. You've never treated a drug addict. You These people are dying. Get out of here. I thought, oh, my God, an elected official that has got, got a brain. Uh, I don't know what the outcome of all that was. I just happened to have seen that a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, I'd say, maybe right at the beginning of COVID. And, uh, and I thought, why aren't they all doing that? I don't understand it. These are not physicians coming in and going hey excuse me this is the right you're going to kill these people if you don't no it's quite the opposite you are killing them if you don't if you keep listening to these assholes you are killing people by the thousands six a day here in los angeles i think that the big problem is that public opinion if you look at public opinion on homelessness in particular 
The public wants zero tolerance on, on encampments on the sidewalk. The public wants uh, stricter enforcement of drug laws. The public wants uh, coercive or mandatory mental health treatment for people on the streets. Um, but the, the, the public, um, the public in a sense, um, uh, uh, majority is not as important as the influence of an activist minority. The activist minority cares more. It pushes more. It has a narrative. Uh, it has influence. It operates within the capital and it wins elections. Uh, and so, um, of course, majority opinion can be mobilized. It can be shaped. It can be directed. Um, but it's not an organic process. Even if you have 70% of a majority, you're not winning those council seats. You're not driving policy. You're not changing the laws, and you're not changing how the laws are enforced. Um, this is, uh, in a some sense, a democratic myth. Um, I would like it to be that way. I, my personal opinion on these issues is in line with the 70% majority. Um, but, but, but in the actual practice of governance, uh, it's simply not enough. Is that ideal? No. Is that how it's supposed to be? Not exactly. Um, but, but that's really the practical matter in the blue cities. And you're right. Conservatives, we, we do have a, a think tank infrastructure. We have an activist infrastructure. We have politics um, uh, in an organized way, but not in blue cities. Um, it's just not worthwhile for, for conservatives to invest there. They they're invest in, in suburbs. They invest in r- uh, rural areas. That's where their base is. And, and for most conservative politicians or, uh, uh, or, or people of influence, they really could, could, could care less uh, uh, about what happens in a place where they don't live. Uh, they say, well, I don't live in, you know, Capitol Hill, Seattle. I don't live in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. I have no means of influencing it. And so they're, they're less, uh, less interested in getting involved. So that is uh, an eye-opening statement to me. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting right in the middle. I'm a moderate. I see both sides of these things. What is, what's the answer? One thing I say for sure as a moderate is that the the public, the average person's interests are not being represented. And in the process, there are people being murdered. And so as a physician, I I can't get it out of my head. So what is the what is the answer here? Is there an answer? Yeah, I I mean, in, in, in the bad news is that there's not an answer that has been implemented or or a model that has been successfully deployed with the partial exception of a city like Austin, Texas. So, and, 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 but I think that Austin, Texas, you know, what worked there in a, in a limited but real way, what worked in Houston, Texas, and in, in, a, in a certain regard, could work in the West Coast cities, but it would need a twist. And so what they did is they organized they politically. They had, they had grassroots groups, they had a movement, they had ballot initiatives, they had PR teams. They had wealthy donors funding their, their efforts. They conducted research. They hosted conferences. They mobilized voters in neighborhoods. They tra- helped train police officers. They changed the laws on the books. They, they held the politicians' feet to the fire to enforce them. And could that work? You know, Austin is, of course, a kind of left-leaning uh, city, but in a greater environment that is in a more conservative state. And, and Austin is politically more conservative than, let's say, San Francisco. I think it could also work in San Francisco and Los Angeles, but it would take a significant intervention. Austin is also much smaller than, than say, Los Angeles uh, County. I mean, Los Angeles County is enormous. So what I think it would take is um, a significant windfall investment from someone on the tune of, you know, $100 million to establish a think tank, to establish a grassroots organization, to establish the, the research, to establish the communications infrastructure, and then to actually put money into political campaigns and political influence 
Um, you know, wow. that's how the game would have to work. And I wish it could be Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but um, unfortunately, I think that's been tried and failed in these cities um, for, for quite a long time. I, I spent a lot of time in Austin, and they still have a, a homeless problem. But there, there's, there's really, it's very clear what's going on. The, the average homeless person is a drug addict. It, it, you, it, but there is also a interesting, and I'm not quite sure what to do with population of down and out black men who are not addicted. They, I don't know if there's mental illness under it or anything, but th that's the group that they are not supporting properly. The drug addict, I, I understand the frustration and difficulties with that. But uh, there, there is this special group there that be, be a great thing for them to solve that for them and see what see what that is and maybe bring that to downtown Los Angeles. I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of opportunity to do really powerful things for people here. And and they don't look at it that way. It's just too much for me. I, I don't know. Well, listen, I, I got to take a little break in a second. But what what led, before we do, though, sort of what led to you writing the book? What what? What's going on in your head about what's your concern here? What, what is the, what is the thesis of the book? Yeah, I mean, the thesis of the book is really underlies, you know, why did things get the way they are on all of these policy areas on in universities in government and K through 12 schools? And so what I did is I traced uh, the, the, the 50 year history of America's cultural revolution, looking at the activists and revolutionaries of the 1960s and then showing how their ideas over time. Uh, took took control in the universities, took control in public policy, took control of K through 12, took control really of the way that we think, the way that we speak, the way that we're permitted uh, to act. And so all of these uh, questions, well, you know, why can no one uh, solve the problem of homelessness? Why are people not proposing solutions? Why is it difficult to even talk about the, the truth in public? That's the question I sought to answer. That's what I tried to do, which was showing this this history of this slow moving revolution how it devoured our, our our institutions of culture how it destroyed some of our great institutions of knowledge and then why it's left us in such a a moral drift um, where you know really in 2020 i think was the first time people saw it clearly our institutions were hyper ideological all at once um, and people asked why uh, and the answer is in this book all right, when we get back, I want to talk about why people can't talk about the truth. What is that? Why, why do we have such a difficult time with reality on reality's terms, which is the nature of mental health? It's being able to accept reality on reality's terms, and we seem that we'll have nothing to do with it. Chris Rufo, you can follow him on Twitter at Real Chris Rufo, R-U-F-O. The book is America's Cultural Revolution. And you're not advocating a revolution. You're describing the revolution since the 60s, correct? That's right. And just really quickly, it just occurs to me, what do you think of, uh, of Ramaswamy's notion of a 2024 revolution? Is that too, too out there? No. I mean, in a sense, you know, the, what I advocate in the book is, I think, more accurately described as a counter-revolution. And so, um, you know, Ramaswamy's idea was actually an old idea that, that he maybe consciously or unconsciously stole from President Nixon. And Nixon's, uh, you know, uh, in Nixon's address to Congress wow. in 1971, he said, we have a revolution in our streets, in our country, in our morals. Um, and, and we need to, the only thing that could counter it is the revolution of of 1776. And so it's an old conceit. I think it's still a good one. 
Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm not a Vivek uh, supporter. I support his opponent, Ron DeSantis, but I appreciate that he's at least bringing some energy to the debate. And and youth, uh, right? That's the nice thing, you know, to see somebody representing uh, young people for the first time in a while. Take a little break. Back with Chris, Chris Rufo. Maybe even get a chance to get a couple calls in here after this. I want to share with you a teeth whitening system that goes beyond merely enhancing your smile. Primal Life Organics Real White Teeth Whitening System offers convenience and rapid results without harsh chemicals. Light, blue light for whitening, red light for gum and oral hygiene, and you can just do both if you wish. Works naturally, promoting gum healing, tooth remineralization, gives you a brighter and a healthier smile. Again, no peroxide involved. Consistent usage yields remarkable results. Take this opportunity to transform your smile and at the same time, optimize your oral health. Aim for five times a week for the best outcomes. Discover more about this remarkable teeth whitening system and other products at drdrew.com primal today. That again is drdrew.com P-R-I-M-A-L. Be sure to use that link for 60% off drdrew.com slash P-R-I-M-A-L. Do it today for 60% off. There are three steps to great looking glowing complexion in the summer course apply sunscreen stay hydrated and use the amazing skincare products from our friends at genucel most retinol creams are not recommended for sunlight but genucel's ultra retinol uses a powerful plant extract retinol it's an alternative called bacuchiol which helps the skin stay hydrated smooths out fine lines without harsh side effects and it is safe to use outside under your sunscreen genucel works so well you can see the results in this unplanned live moment on our show when the redness repair cream repaired my skin in just minutes right before your eyes and susan and i love genucel so much we created our affordable bundles at up to 72 percent off of our favorite products at genucel.com slash drew and just for the summer every subscription includes a customized summer spa gift box absolutely free i know i'm a snob about the products i use on my face everybody knows it Every time I go to the dermatologist's office, they're just rows and rows of different creams. And then when I get to the counter, they're overpriced. All kinds of products that you can all find at Genucel.com. See what's in our bundles. Get ready to show off your summertime skin. Go to Genucel.com slash Drew. That's G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash D-R-E-W. Genucel.com slash Drew. And remember to use the code Drew at checkout for extra savings. And we were back with Chris Rufo uh, before the break. We were talking about uh, trying to understand why people can't speak the truth. Chris, I understand you've been uh, one of the sort of more uh, sort of uh, sort of obvious answers to that question is uh, people are afraid they get attacked. And I understand you were attacked as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, and, and in, in a variety of ways and, and certainly... Um, uh, look, if, if you speak out on these issues, you will get attacked in an escalating manner. You know, the, the first is simple criticism, which is part of the game. I mean, that's how it works. You enter the political arena, you expect to get attack, attacked. Um, then you get the kind of smear pieces from some of the media outlets and, uh, uh, you know, they lie about you. I got one, one smear piece from the Washington Post that I actually rebutted very significantly and I forced them to retract six entire paragraphs, retract or add clarification for six entire paragraphs. Their key, you know, claim against me uh, totally fell apart. They had to retract it. And, uh, and uh, you know, so, so you have that kind of level of, of attack. And then, of course, you get 
you know, especially on issues like homelessness, especially local issues, um, you get, you know, physically intimidated, threatened, followed, doxxed, uh, you know, all, all of these very unsavory techniques that, that, that you have. And, and look, anyone in politics in, in uh, uh, let's say, the, West, the big West Coast cities, you know, they know how it works. This happens immediately. If you pose any threat to the orthodoxy, if you pose any threat to the status quo, um, the, the attacks come very, very significantly. You know, they'll try to get you fired from your job. They'll try to get you, you know, ejected from polite society. Um, and I think a lot of people consequently determine that, that, that actually participating or fighting back is just not worthwhile. What else do you think figures into why we can't speak any about reality? Why, why we're not allowed to sort of even muse about the yeah. facts? I mean, there are, there are the obvious things, right? You have, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, threats, intimidation, you know, media attacks, of course. You have censorship. Obviously, you know, you've dealt with that uh, in a very real way. So tech companies censoring uh, opinion. Um, but I think, you know, there's a more subtle and maybe more interesting, but I think almost certainly more um, uh, uh, more pervasive method of, of, let's say, kind of pre-censorship. And it's this idea that um, people don't even have the language or the vocabulary or the concepts to describe reality, to describe what they believe, to describe uh, what they would like to see. And so um, there's a vague dissatisfaction among so many people but they don't have the information or they don't have even the vocabulary to describe it. And, and I think that that's a big problem with our education system. You know, um, you know, a lot of times you ask, I ask people in higher education, I'm working a lot in higher education right now. Well, what is the purpose of higher education? They have no idea. They've never thought about it. They've never developed an opinion about it. They have no idea of the tradition. Um, and I think that there are so many issues like that where, um, you know, you talk about local government. Well, what is the purpose of local government? The first one is to secure uh, the, the, the safety, uh, to secure the life and the property of, of the inhabitants of the government. Um, and people, you say that and they, it, it, look, it sounds like you're saying something totally new to people, but this is the very basic, uh, this is how our, our, our system has, well, not has worked, but was supposed to work since the very beginning. You know, you had natural rights to, to life, liberty, and property, the pursuit of happiness. The government is supposed to secure those very basic rights. Um, and we don't have that in these cities, but these cities have record money. They have incredible technology. They have hundreds of thousands of people that, that, that work for them, but they don't even know the very basic purpose of what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, it's what I've been saying for quite some time. I mean, at least in these, I, you know, I, I live a lot of my time in New York City and their government sort of works and they sort of provide things. They've got their own problems, but you get transportation, you get streets, you get an extraordinarily complex sanitation, you know, trash system and you get water. I mean, everything is kind of, it's incredibly complex and they deliver on that. You come to Los Angeles, no, no transportation, no roads, no power, no water no safety. I mean, the basic, basic reason for government. I just keep saying, why do we have a government? This is the basic function of government. They're not governing. And you're saying they don't even seem to understand what governing is, which is breathtaking. I, I just, you know, I remember back when I was uh, probably in high school, they always talk about, they talk about transportation and they talk about sanitation and they talk about water and they do the things that the basic functions of government that thank God we get here in Pasadena quite well. And in fact, that's one of the 
of the reasons I, I, I was started thinking about this. It stood out compared to Los Angeles. But what, what do people think they're doing? Well, they think that they're pursuing revolution and they think they're dispensing social justice. They think they're standing on, uh, uh, on behalf of the oppressed. Um, and, and, and here's, here's why there's a discrepancy. Can't because, they do that and govern? Um, can't, can't they do that and govern? No, Could they leave uh, the, not, not leave out the governing part? <laughs> that's no, astonishing because, to me. You know, listen, um, you know, creating a water treatment plant, running an electrical grid, maintaining a, a network of, you know, uh, thousands of miles of roads, is actually very difficult and logistically complex. Yeah. It's technically complex. Yeah. Uh, it's it's kind of thankless work. No one no one is excited when they have you know uh, power twenty four seven. It's taken for granted at this point, um, although that's changing. Um, but fighting for social justice, screaming at city council meetings, and calling someone a you know a, a Nazi uh, after work is 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 immediately gratifying to the emotions. And it takes actually no effort. It takes no expertise. It takes no hard work. It takes no sacrifice of immediate interest. And so you have a governing class now in some places like uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles and Seattle that is content, con that is contenting itself uh, with delivering these symbolic uh, victories and fighting these symbolic fights um, because governing a complex uh, logistical effort is simply too difficult. They have no interest in it. They have no capacity for it. Uh, and they'd substitute uh, these symbolic concerns for the actual hard work of governing. Wow. I don't understand why that is more obvious to people, if that, if that is true, which it seems to be. I keep, I keep pointing at it, and you're confirming it for the first time for me. The other thing that's uh, troubling me here, a couple things I want to talk about. One is the role of money. Um, it's come up in some really kind of odd ways in this conversation. One is that you need a hundred million dollars to have some sort of counterforce, but it's also very much figures into what politicians do. It's, uh, as you said, there's sort of a unionized system in delivery of care and homelessness and these other, all these other phenomena. It, it, money has a, it's too just so to say coercive, it's an entanglement that I, I worry about. Is there anything can be done about that? Yeah, I, I mean, yes. Although what I would say is that um, part of the reason why the, the system does not change is because the players in the system all benefit from the system as it is today. That is the, yeah, to say yeah. the status quo. Um, you know, the, the, these, these cities are spending billions of dollars on homelessness services per year. I know. Uh, uh, and so I'm aware, uh, the, you know, the, I, I could, the, the, I could the, cut you know, that in a, half a, and deliver medical services for them. I know exactly yeah. how to do it. I told one of the supervisors to go get that Sears building. Here's the three system we're going to put in there. Here's how we'll staff it. No problem. That's not a billion dollars. That yes. is not a billion dollars. It's not even a hundred million. It, it, it's not. And, and, but, but look, I mean, what you have to do is something that's very difficult. You have to separate uh, the individual uh, from the individual's paycheck. Um, and so, uh, you know, people fight for good governance, people fight for reforms, um, but to actually fight to separate a large group of people from, all, from their paychecks um, is going to create a furious reaction. Um, they will fight you, uh, you know, uh, seemingly to the death uh, to protect their, their, their income stream, their cash flow. And so you, you are up against something that is a, a very profound uh, connection 
And then everyone is in on the corrupt system. I mean, they see the city. Uh, they see the, the lack of results. They see the numbers and the dashboards that they create. Um, but they are willing to look the other way or they're willing to rationalize it or make excuses for it um, because they are paid um, to the status quo. They are not paid to deliver results. And so you need uh, someone that has the strength, that has the, the guts, that has the commitment, that is willing to tell people, no more paycheck for you. Go find a real job. You're hurting people. You're not helping them. Um, and we're going to find people who are actually dedicated uh, to results. Um, and I'm, I'm zeroing out your budget. Um, that's what actually has to happen. And I'm afraid that that is actually a rare set of skills that very few people have. Well, and certainly the the voting public doesn't seem to understand who that person is. They, they just have no interest in that person, it seems like. So the other thing I wanted to ask about was, you know, you've, you've framed this as a cultural revolution. And I've been thinking two, two things, that there is sort of a, you know that book, The Fourth Turning? Uh, mm -hmm. talking about generational differences and things. You know, I've sort of lived through that and seen that in real time from the standpoint of psychology and psychopathology. And, you know, I've seen the narcissistic turn. I've seen now hysteria kick in. I've seen envy become the predominant psychological kind of uh, wind of the day. I mean, people are, you know, into expressing mm. envy, which is the thing that every religion on earth has injunctions against because it's the most destructive, disgusting of human emotions. And yet envy has value now. When I look about kind of how this happened, it's interesting you mentioned Richard Nixon talking about this in 1971. It's always seemed to me like we've, we've gone from glorifying certain pathologies over the last 50 years. So when I was a kid, you know, if you really look at who the rock stars were, it ain't pretty. We, we glorified these guys. And some of, if you look at some of the lyrics from the 70s, it's... This, it's just you breathtaking what they were advocating and what they thought was okay. And look at the behavior of Led Zeppelin and, you know, what the abuse of women and just, you just go down the line. These are sociopaths. These are drug addicts and sociopaths. And we elevated them to a very high status. It seems like we've gone through this period of 50 years where we used to elevate people that sort of did good things <laughs> and we went, we switched somewhere in the sixties. Uh, is that a post-World War II phenomenon? Is it still... I, I've, I've tried to look at the grand sweep of history and figure out how this all happened. Is that still remnants of the Civil War and, and Reconstruction that we're trying to, we were trying to work through? And uh, the youth sort of brought it to the surface? What do you imagine that was? Or do you have an opinion about that? And what, where are yeah, we now, I, I think more a importantly? Big, a big reason for this is the process of secularization. So... Up until and really through the World War II period, you had a general moral consensus. And it was a generally Judeo-Christian, but really a, a Christian moral consensus. You still had very high rates of church attendance. Most people in the United States shared this basic ethical framework. It was understood. It was implicit. It was shaped daily life. It shaped the, the cultural prohibitions you're talking about. Um, the disappearance of that has led to a, a vacuum that has been filled like by sociopathy, as you're saying, uh, by narcissism. You're talking about this 80s and 90s. Um, but what I think is the dominant cast today, and something that I've been thinking about a lot, if you look at the cluster B personality disorders, 
uh, which includes narcissism, which includes borderline, which includes uh, antisocial personality disorder, which includes uh, histrionic personality disorder. If you just read the DSM uh, criteria, the kind of bullet points of, of, of the kind of traits exhibited by someone suffering from these, these cluster of uh, uh, disorders, or, or one of them, or one or multiple, um, they, they, you kind of read them and you say, oof, this very much uh, reminds me of all of the cultural patterns that are rewarded and incentivized in our society. Uh, it's, it's like all of the social media content you see. It's people who are val- valorized or lionized um, on, 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 uh, certainly by left-wing activists. And then it's the pattern of behavior that you see, especially in universities. You have uh, hysterical theatrics, demand on attention, narcissistic identity complexes, um, the demand for, uh, for care while rejecting authority. I mean, you go down the list and you say, my God, our society has become this. Uh, and so I, I think that if, you know, if you compare them, you say, well, you know, whatever the kind of restrictions were and, uh, you know, the old um, of the kind of Christian moral ethic and whatever we have now, uh, you know, okay, maybe it's been liberated in some ways, but liberated towards what? It's a, it's a disaster, um, but it's a disaster that I think is going to only increase and only intensify in the future. So fascinating. Have you ever heard me talk about this, this very issue? I have not. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me tell you, and for people that have, I apologize. (laughs) So, 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 uh, I wrote a book on this. I, I've done a lot of thinking about it. I've sort of stalled lately on it a little bit because people have become so histrionic and I did not anticipate the histrionic move. I thought we were deep into the cluster B, but I didn't see a lot of histrionic. But let me just tell you. So I arrived at a, as a young resident at the psychiatric hospital in 1985. And when you fill out a, an admission form at a psychiatric hospital, certainly back in those days, they would have the you know primary thing, which would be you know, depression. Oh, there's the uh, yeah, it was the mirror effect. I wrote about that, and but they didn't put everything in it I wanted to put. That's why I explained to Chris. So the the you know they have you know major depressive disorder. Axis two is the personality disorders, right? And when I arrived at the psychiatric hospital, the personality disorders were across the spectrum, A, B, and C. I would see a lot of dependent personalities, a lot of obsessive compulsive personalities, a lot of different things. And I noticed as we moved, and I stayed at that hospital for 35 years, so I got to see this all in real time. As we moved into the late 80s, we started seeing a lot of borderline. And by the time the 90s hit, it was all cluster B, exclusively. You never saw A or C, or almost never. So we literally, it was played out in the mental health setting. And it certainly continues until today. And along the time, there was a bunch of literature suggesting that narcissistic traits had become more common. There was this whole argument about acquired narcissism. But I'm here to tell you, because I watched it in real time, I talked to people in real time, hundreds of people on the radio every night and you know throughout the weeks, trauma. Childhood trauma was at pandemic levels in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Go back to the lyrics of the guys in the 70s talking about acting out on 14-year-old girls as the coolest thing in the world, and you get a sense of what was going on. There was childhood trauma, sexual abuse, neglect, physical abuse, and, and more drug addiction in the family systems. Lots of adverse childhood experiences, which my profession finally caught up with by 2000, that, oh my goodness, adverse childhood experiences can affect people's health. Can you imagine that? 
that. But the the trauma was really the, the 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 so the two issues. There was this trend, and then there was childhood trauma on top of that. And then you add in, and so when I wrote that book, I I spent a lot of time going, God, I wonder if we have historical antecedents where this has happened before. The closest relative of that period of history I could find was pre-revolutionary France, where children were routinely abandoned on the steps of. Uh, you know, uh, adoption homes, whatever they call them, orphanages, where ch children were acted out on sexually all the time. And what did you get? Guillotines. You get scapegoating. And I, at the time that I wrote that book, I wanted to write a chapter about scapegoating mechanisms and how there had to be a time when all this narcissistic rage had to get focused out there or else they destroy each other. That's kind of what it happens. That's why the Aztecs would tear the, you know, the heart out every morning and throw it down the stairs. No, it's not because they thought the sun would come up. It's like, people, oh, it's because they, they, they needed it for the sun to come up. No, why did they do that in the first place? Why was that so necessary to maintain the stability of that society? Because that same phenomenon of scapegoating. Scapegoating is a very, very powerful mechanism. And by the way, the Aztecs had something called the Codex, which was a specific um, guidebook for how to traumatize your child to turn them into a great warrior. That was adaptive for them. They needed to do that and they did it, but then they could tear each other apart if they didn't scapegoat every morning. France was a little closer relative to what we were dealing with, but you got guillotines. And I, when I wrote that book and the, and whenever it was, I didn't know about social media yet. And I didn't understand that would be about the public square where cancellation would be the guillotine of our, of our time. You're absolutely right. Cluster B is uh, ubiquitous. And the way we dealt with cluster B at the time and still to this day is with firmness and unity yeah. and a consistent wall. Like you don't, hey, stop it. Somebody goes, stop. You're hurting people. You stop it. You're hurting yourself. You're firm with them. And you go, we're going to do something a little different here. You're going to be, I, I, I love you dearly, but stop. It's got to stop. The other thing about the, the systems part of this is back when I saw the borderline thing coming on in the 80s, that was when the legal system was the playground for individuals with borderline disorders. I don't know if you were old enough to be aware then, but that's when you had all the lawsuits about hot coffee spills and somebody scraping yeah. their knee and then taking down McDonald's. And that, that was all borderline. And those, that's, the wow. legal system caught on to that and started punishing people for doing that. Like, no, you're going to get slapped. You can't do that. You're going to end up paying for the, the, the procedures. And people, are, people adjust themselves when the, when the consequences are intense. The problem is the same people, same disorders are in the government. And there's no one to put a little stop to, to some of the behaviors now. Uh, and they can be very aggressive and very vengeful and very envious. And envy is the is the it is the liability in, in cluster B disorders, envy. It's the worst part of those disorders and aggression. I, I, I so have a question because this, is something, I've been, this yeah. is something I've been thinking about. And so I think you're absolutely right. But the difference now is that there's been also a collapse of authority. In the late 80s, early 90s, um, you still had the kind of old school people that were probably in high positions in the hospital. They had firmness. They had resolve. They could say no. They could set limits. Mm -hmm. That's gone. Uh, you have uh, in a university mm -hmm. setting, for example, it's almost, you know, it, it's a very much of a, of a, a feminine, archetypally feminine, but also demographically uh, feminine domain. So you have different set of social strategies, different set of rules. 
there's been a sense uh, nobody has been willing to, in a university setting, leadership-wise, to say no, to set boundaries, to impose limits, to have prohibitions of any kind. Right. And so you have right. a, a kind of cluster B family uh, drama where you have, um, and, and I'd be curious if you saw this in, in an actual real sense uh, in your clinical work, mm-hmm. you have, a, say, a, a female with a cluster B type symptoms that is acting out, that is seeking attention, that is you know, pushing and pulling, mm-hmm. you know, histrionic, et cetera. You have a, a, a kind of mother figure that is indulging, is codependent, rewards, uh, rewards those behaviors. And you have, in a sense, an absent father figure. Father is gone. Um, mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the uh, archetypal drama that I see within our institutions today over and over. Is that something yeah. that dovetails with your actual clinical experience? The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, oh boy. Oh, he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's not addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. Oh, uh, this is all, absolutely. It's a, it, 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 it is because the, the cluster B feels out of control and uncontained, they don't like being that way. They, they look for some external containment to help them with some of these unregulated emotions. They, I Listen, I worked a lot with borderline. I have deep empathy for what they deal with. The, no one suffers more than them. But in the process, they heard, they wreak chaos. That's part of their thing is projective identification. And if there's not, I don't, you know, it doesn't have to be a father and a mother or just, you, you, there has to be just unity. There just has to be a, 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 a unified front around them that keep them glued together. And it's somewhat different for, you know, as you move across the different cluster B disorders, but, but it's all kind of at its core, the same sort of phenomenon, which is, um, I was, you know, I was abused. I was a, I'm a victim and I'm, I'm aggressive and I'm going to, you know, I, I can't, I can't regulate my emotions because I didn't get what I need from, from the environment. And it's, it's, um, it's something that if you, you know, I get overwhelmed thinking about it, but it, it, it running amok, it's not a good thing for anybody. It's particularly not good for the individual that's running amok. They don't end up happier because of it. They end up much more miserable. And that's the part you will not get people to, where, to believe. Where do you think it goes from here, though? Because it's now been projected onto our institutions. 
It's not just a personal yeah. private matter, psychological matter. What happened to your, to your patients as a cohort, as a group that might give us some, some idea of where this could go institutionally? You know, I, I, people, if they are not contained, will spiral. They will get worse and will do things that people will push back on, but they'll do it with aggression as opposed to sort of containment because it, it just keeps going and keeps going. It does not have any end to it. And what, what has to come in, I'm imagining, is a, another generation that has not been so traumatized and is sort of wondering what the hell's going on here, kind of moving in and going, uh, no, enough. You, you must stop. It's very simple. It's not, you don't have to be aggressive. It's just, no, 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 just no, no, no. Just, just the same with the homeless. Like, no, you, you can't lay down on the sidewalk. I, I, yes, you, you can go live your life as you please, but I've got something good for you here. Let's, let's go over here. I can help you. I can help you. You really don't like living like this. I know your brain isn't working, so you can't see that. That's the other part. We privilege denial. We privilege distortions. We privilege projection. We privilege a projective identification. And all these things are extremely problematic for people's thriving. And by the way, you mentioned religion a little while ago. That's all kind of designed to contain all that. You know, for the yeah. first time on this show, when people have called in, they've been talking about going back, even though they're not religious and not, don't necessarily have a faith in God, they're finding themselves going back to religion to sort of get something good out of it, which it's designed to help with all of this. I mean, imagine where religion grew up in situations of extreme trauma and instability, and and it was there to kind of contain what, what happens to us as adults when, when all that stuff uh gets a rolling and it's and guess what people were happier they were better they thrived more and i and i think that the political corollary is quite interesting so if you say the french revolution we're in kind of a pre-french revolution feeling or or at least you know in some loose sense and then the guillotines come and then the the terror happens mm -hmm. you have uh, uh, the attempt mm -hmm. to impose ideology and to reshape the world without limits uh, and then who marches in, or rather, who rides his horse in? Uh, it's Napoleon. Uh, and so, so I, 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 yeah, I, I, I know. feel that we are concerning, in right? a very difficult and very um, uh, frightening period where um, both sides are are, are 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 kind of jockeying for position, and there seems to be the the the, the punch counter punch, the reach overreach. You know, and 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 um, yeah, and and I, and I say this actually in a, in a sad way. I think it's I think it's you know a, a sad thing, but it it does seem like that there is also some sense of uh, someone has to come in from the outside uh, uh, and and and, and yeah. make sense of it for us. Uh, and and again, I don't like that. I don't want that. But, um, I, but I'm going to push that back on a that. Rising I, 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 I give. I, I, I guess what you're saying, and I do look, I look to history to try to imagine or understand what we're going through now. And, and you're right, that that's certainly a possibility. But maybe that was Trump. Maybe we had a small version of that in some people's minds. And I, I just believe, this is my belief, Chris, that this, the, these, our founding fathers were truly brilliant. And they really did use the wisdom of all history prior to 1776. And the state system is our buffer against this. The fact that we yes. have the kind of that we are a, we are not a federal government. We are a more perfect union of states, and those and those state systems and and the functioning of local government. While you and I have been complaining about it's not really working, 
Alexa de Tocqueville in 1822 said it's it's the local practice of democracy that makes America work. And we and it, yes. when I spoke to all those uh, national um, uh, county board supervisors, I, I commended them for being the representative of that. And guess what? The vast majority of their counties did work and did function, yes. and they were well-meaning, and they were able to take direction. And so, so the 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 vastness of our system and the localization and the statehood. I think that's our I think that's our buffer. And the fact that in France things were a lot worse. The the reality <laughs> of the economic situation, yeah. the reality of a hundred years war, the realities of Britain breathing down their neck all the time, the excesses of uh, Louis the fourteenth, fifteenth, and sixteenth, these were real things that really pissed people off. And you know, it was a totally different thing. So I I'm gonna say that was then, and we have certain things now that will sort of mitigate some of that. What do you say? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. Um, certainly, that's that's my hope as well. And and I, I think you're exactly right. Look, we have a, a system of states. I think for the first time in my lifetime, states are starting to look and act differently. Um, and I think that this is good. It yeah, allows people to yeah. move. It allows people to travel. It allows people to pick up stakes and go to a system of government yeah. that is more aligned with yeah. their values. I think that's good rather than bad. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, the public is starting to reassert its authority over the state institutions and the government institutions. I think that yeah. is good. I think yeah. our founders uh, had a system that works slowly on purpose at the federal level. You have mm -hmm. to get your 60 votes in the Senate now. I mean, not exactly from the founders, but, uh, uh, you know, but, but, you know, historical precedent on, on the filibuster, on, on the party system, on uh, kind of mixed, uh, a mixed governing regime. And so I think we have mm -hmm. all the tools that we need. I, I, I am, I am, committed to the idea that we can resolve all of our problems through peaceful democratic means. And I, and, and I think that we have to all refocus on that. We have to all participate in that. Um, uh, and, and so I, I, I'm with you. Um, and and it, it, in 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 the sense that, and I think it's um, going that way. I think it's going that problems, way too. I think, I think, I think there's a them. I think there's a trend. Yeah, I think there's a trend in that direction. And you're right. If I really got tired of Los Angeles, I I can always leave. I can always go to Miami. I can always go somewhere yeah. else. And it, it's I go to Austin. And and, uh, and we have that. We have that. And it makes things different. And 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 by the way, the the abuse and the the endorsement of abuse and stuff that I saw in the 80s, 90s, and 70s. It's over. It's that's not happening like yeah. that. There's still a lot of you know un, unstable family systems and kids are getting traumatized through that. But at least there's an acknowledgement that that's not good. First time in the debates yeah. last night, I heard people say family and education. I've never, I've, you couldn't say that without getting attacked for the last 15 years. So so it's sort of you know yeah. these these things that are matter of fact and that grandma knew and have been going on forever and we just know to be important for the human being. It's it's sort of. It's slowly coming back. The question really is how much damage is going to be done in places. You know, in the, the, the stuff I have to look at, which is my patience in the street. Yeah. Leopold, unmute your mic there, my friend. Uh, you're up on the podium. Good to hear from you. What's happening? Hey, hey there. Good to hear from you too, Dr. Drew and Chris. Uh, really enjoyed uh, what you had to say today. And I want to go back to some comments that uh, were made. Uh, you mentioned uh, the Las Vegas mayor who cleaned up the town and uh, I actually yeah yes yeah dr drew and i saw this interview with that mayor uh he was being interviewed actually quite recently 
and he described oh, how wait, wait. he did I, it. I'm, I'm thinking of a, wait, hang on, hang on. I'm thinking of a woman. Okay. There was a female mayor in before who, oh, who made the first move oh. and she was well pilloried for it. But go ahead. Tell me. Oh, yeah. well, 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 Oscar Goodman, who was the mob lawyer. I don't know if you know the little history about him, but he did an interview uh, actually uh, about a year ago and he talked about how he cleaned up the, uh, you know, the city. And he was down in uh, the San Diego area. He was actually in Coronado. And he mentioned uh, he went to the chief of police of Coronado and he asked, how did he, you know, how do you keep this, you know, little island uh, so wonderful and pristine? And he quite literally mm-hmm. said, we, we ship the homeless and undesirables back to San Diego, literally over the Coronado mm-hmm. Bridge. And, and and this mayor, he talked about how he would take pretty drastic steps with folks. And he, he illustrated it with uh, someone who was doing graffiti and actually had this graffiti, uh, you know, vandal actually brought to his office and literally threatened him. And all the pundits and all the liberal media types were uh, after him and said, oh, you're going to lose the next election. Apparently that story got out. He was elected with even more of the vote. I think that, I think we've reached yeah, a limit in, in the society where, where, you know, uh, people who spend, you know, a couple million dollars on a, you know, a penthouse apartment don't want the homeless urinating in their, you know, uh, down below uh, when they get well, out of the elevator, you know? Yeah. And, but uh, yes. Agreed, sir. You doing well, by the way, you good. You're, Oh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. But I, good. I wanted to segue. You sound good. I, well, thank you. Go ahead. Thank you so much. Well, I wanted to segue into something else that was mentioned, which was I remember how the, you know, the L.A. Uh, slimes went after you when you were being, uh, you know, considered for that position for the homeless. And I think yeah. it was exactly what you mentioned. I think you threatened the flow of money. I think if you follow the money, there's oh, a sure. lot of money in of homelessness. Course. And, and I think that, uh, I think, I think you were going to shed some light on that. And, and I think they were yeah, very threatened by that. Yeah, I know you would have. Mm-hmm. And I yep. think they knew that. And by the and, way, the, yeah. the, the press played into it. The activists were yes. the ones that they interviewed rather than people with a knowledge about how to treat these things That's or deal right. with these things. But okay. All right. Well, well it was, done. It was you, a horrible. The press, you were, LA Times. LA Times, you were you were yeah. disgusting. You were disgusting. Yeah. You want to be ashamed of yourself. Well, I, call, I end up calling I the call reporter back, and I go, "Why don't you ask yeah. me what my training is? Why don't you ask me what my yeah. credentials are? You yeah. you reported that yeah. I have a, have a license in the state of California. I've had three clinical assistant professorships. I'm a fellow in yeah. two different societies. What the hell oh, are you yeah. reporting on? What's what kind of reporter are you? It's disgusting. Well, that's what, anyway, well, Leopold, I got to throw me. you back in. I got to throw. Well, go ahead. Last, they're last called thought. the LA, I, I call them the LA slimes for a reason. So that's the reason. Yeah, there you go. My <laughs> Anyways. Friend. I appreciate yeah. that. See you soon, my friend. Yeah. The, he, but Leopold did, uh, you know, he, he touched on something without intending to, we'll have to bring you back to talk about this, which is we do have a class problem. We do. Uh, and, and people are avoiding that. It seems to me, uh, are, do you agree with me on that? Yeah, I, I mean, depending on in what sense, what, what what do you mean in the last 
little bit that we have. Well, yeah. I, I'm not sure what sense. I'm just aware that there's some tension there and that people are avoiding it. That, that's sort of, I haven't thought yeah. a lot about it yet. Maybe I'll do some thinking on it and then bring you back in. But but a lot of a lot of what we do focus on seems to me like um, a little bit of, um, uh, what would it, with slight, not what would it, where, misdirection. What do magicians do when they try to get you to, misdirection, thank you. It's a misdirection from a, a more ch challenging, difficult problem. They point at, income inequality that's not what we're looking at in the streets the income inequality is, is a much more dicey complicated problem that we really should be talking about and most of it frankly well most of it a huge piece is the erosion of the middle class the ability to, to have a you know a good life in this country and that that's the part they seem to run away from right now but chris thank you so much uh, i'll leave it there we could go on and on and on um th let's put the book up again it is america's cultural revolution um tell me again what i'm going to learn about in the book so we'll give that pitch you'll you'll understand uh, uh left-wing ideology from 1968 to the present uh, you'll understand it uh, as far as what these ideas are but you'll also understand how they attach themselves to power how they burrowed into our, into our institutions uh, and how they seem to dominate american life in the years following 2020. you know it's funny some of these um tactics that i'm seeing made me i keep reaching back in history i've started reading a lenin biography and lo and behold he's advocating some of these same damn just yell at people until they get tired and shut up that was his his way of arguing early in his career and he was explicit about it so there it is that's the activist thing all right guys uh thank you chris thank you everybody for calling exactly. leopold thank you i'm sorry to get to more calls today i i've got to run to bert kreischer's uh, podcast interestingly uh, so look for that. And uh, let's see, it's Thursday. So our next show will be on Tuesday. Are, are we put those up there so I can make sure I get the times right. I screwed that all up this week. Um, uh, let's see on Tuesday, looks like the 29th looks like normal time. Thursday, Wednesday with uh, Dr. Victory is going to be early at noon. And then on Thursday, Mark Cianchese, I'm very looking forward to this, the cognitive psychologist. And I believe there's a possibility on Wednesday that uh, Dr. Freeman may make a uh, command per, uh, appearance, uh, repeat performance, because uh, there's been so much we learned from him that I've been sort of parsing out into the world and finding that uh, there's a lot of layers to that part that he uh, brought to light. So until then, we will see you next time. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Thank <laughs> you.